0: Uh, there was this assumption that there would be all this value creation. And I, for the most part, I don't think that's really happened. It's, the problem hasn't been these things are massively used, creating tons of value, but we can't capture the value. It's that uh, the value hasn't really been created yet.
1: I'm Tor Bear from Enigma, and welcome to Decentralize This. Hello, oh, hello, and welcome to another episode of Decentralized This, presented by Enigma. I'm Torbear, I'm the head of growth for Enigma. And on today's episode, I'm speaking with Tony Sheng. Tony is currently leading product at Decentraland, which is an open virtual world running on Ethereum. He's also a prolific writer in the decentralization space, and he's publishing weekly on topics ranging from in-game economies and growth models to investment valuations, governance, and censorship. Previously, Tony worked on products at companies like Google and Altspace VR, and he remains very interested in virtual reality, which we'll discuss. On this episode, Tony and I will also talk about what he's currently reading and writing, what important metrics are for early stage projects, how replacement cost can be used as a valuation model, and how growth, ownership, and games are all interconnected. Tony has spent a lot of time thinking about these topics, and even more time collecting these thoughts into his awesome writing, which he graciously shares openly with the community. He was also gracious enough to discuss them with me, and I hope our conversation helps you form your own ideas and inspires you to write about them yourself. So, without any further introduction, here is Tony Sheng. Tony, thank you so much for joining me on this episode of Decentralized. This. It's wonderful to finally connect, man.
0: You too. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
1: So, uh, we start every podcast the exact same way, so I extend it to you. Who are you professionally, personally, who is Tony Shang?
0: Professionally, I'm the product lead at Decentraland, which is a virtual world owned by its users. Um, I also write about crypto on my personal business blog, I guess, TonyShang.com. Subscribe. And (laughs) personally, how, how do people answer this question? I mean, I... I'm just a, I'm a curious person. I think there are a lot of interesting things um, for us to do as people and a lot of areas for us to improve, which is what uh, drew me to crypto. And I like to have fun. I like to play games and ski and stuff like that.
1: I think that's a good answer. I mean, it kind of speaks a bit to your motivation uh, in terms of getting into the space. It also speaks a little bit into... What you've worked on in the past, uh, like some people come from an investing background, some people come from like a, you know, kind of CS, developer-heavy background, and I find it informs their perspective on the space. You seem to come from more of like a product background than a lot of other people I run into in the blockchain or, or crypto space. Do you think of yourself that way? Do you think of yourself as like a product guy?
0: No, I think I do. Yeah. Functionally, I'm definitely in the product camp. That's what I do at Decentraland. Uh, That's what I did at Google and a few startups before that. Mostly, I'm just interested in releasing things into the world and seeing how people react to them. And ideally doing them in a way that affects people positively. Mm -hmm. Uh, And product is a pretty direct path to that outside of like, you know, doing product and engineering.
1: Yeah, and maybe that explains why you write so much. I was going to ask you, like, in terms of just like putting stuff out there and seeing how people react. Like, what what made you start writing so much, and how have people reacted?
0: It's mostly it started off entirely for myself. Uh, I, I'd written about various topics in the past um, that weren't really professionally driven, and I I did a one of my majors in college was English, so it's something that. I've enjoyed doing for a long time, but getting into crypto more, more seriously, I, there were just so many things I didn't understand or just things I thought were curious and I would voraciously read everything, all the wonderful people I've put out about those things. But a lot of times there just wasn't anything. So I would come up with a topic that I thought was interesting and, um, gather a bunch of facts, see if there was some kind of concept there to explore and publish it. And publishing was really just a hack to hold me accountable make sure that I, I got it out there. And, um, it was really fortunate that some people found it valuable and uh, it's been able to kind of take a life of its own. Um, and yeah.
1: Yeah. The, a lot of people do find it valuable. I'm I'm included, right? I, I've read a lot of your stuff. I think you write about a lot of interesting topics. I'm curious before we get into some of those topics in particular, who were some of the people who were writing? at the time, like when you were starting to get into writing more yourself, I do the same thing where I write to just organize my thoughts and understand, like, especially in this field where you can't possibly absorb everything that's going on, but you want to form some kind of mental model, some kind of understanding. Who who were you reading when you were forming that model, that mental model of the space for yourself?
0: I think a good way to approach that problem is just look at all the people that I cited in my early works. And it's a lot of like Nick Carter's uh, some of the stuff that the multi coin guys put out, um, more mm-hmm. specific things about technologies that individual engineers put out. Uh, it was pretty broad-based, but in terms of the format, the treatment of topics, the kind of motivation for doing it, um, definitely uh, Kyle Cinemani, Nick Carter, um, Ben Thompson uh, outside of crypto, uh, Ryan Salkis. I mean, Ryan and Nick were the ones that really got me going uh, indirectly. They, they had both published something about writing being one of the highest leverage things you can do in really any professional industry, crypto, for sure. And I took that to heart and just went after it. So I have a lot uh, a lot of positive things to say about those guys.
1: Yeah, Ryan came on the show. He was, he was the second guest we ever had. And, and it was clear that like he now has a lot of like very, uh, very sensible beliefs about the space. And and I think that those were part of that evolution of just like writing, shipping, seeing how people were reacting. Uh, he strikes me as the kind of person who doesn't really care if everybody agrees with what he's writing so long as he feels like he's writing from an informed perspective. You know, is, is that kind of how you feel? Like if you put something out there and somebody adre- disagrees with you? you know, at a fundamental level, they're just like, this is wrong, right? It challenges some deeply held belief that they had. What, what's your reaction? Like, does does that bother you? Does it cause you to like, do you always then go back and kind of reevaluate how you've been writing or are you pretty, are you pretty assured in, in everything that you're putting out there?
0: Uh, definitely not pretty assured. I mean, I, I do my best effort given the time and um, resources that I put into each post, but I definitely bias towards high volume and I'm not afraid to be wrong because most likely I'm going to be wrong about a lot of things. A lot of the, what I write is kind of, what if we looked at it this way? Here are some of the implications that I think might happen. So it's pretty speculative in nature. Um, so very often, I, I mean, almost every post I put out, somebody responds with, but what if you thought about it this way? Or some people even, like there have been several posts where there are long Twitter threads of people who are just like, this is like, what, what did they say? Uh, word salad or something like that. You know, like really, really disparaging things. And... Of course, it's not great to feel like people are unhappy with things that you've put out, but it's really helpful. I'm not um, all the way on the Cunningham's Law, like say the wrong thing so you can learn the right thing um, end of the spectrum. Uh, that's a nice benefit, but I try to steel man both sides of the argument as I write it uh, beforehand. Um, so when I'm wrong, it's like actually super helpful because then I go back and revise it. Usually I'll update the original post and um, write some kind of update in the next post.
1: I think that's a healthy perspective. Right. And and of course, uh, there's a lot of stuff being written out there right now, like and people from completely different perspectives are, are writing with equal confidence. Right. Like there's cases where the opinions are mutually exclusive. Only one is technically going to be like right longer term. I guess it's easier to just say, like, it's shades of gray. And you're just coming at that from like the first from the first perspective. You're just like, this is shades of gray. I'm just going to give it a best effort. And I think that for, for people who are looking to get started with writing, like a lot of people listening to this, I, I think are trying to write more themselves for the same reason that you describe. Is there any other advice that you'd give them just about like getting started with this stuff?
0: Yeah. Go, I mean, go high volume and embedded in that is don't be afraid to just publish. Um, don't overthink it. Like, don't be afraid of other people. Most of the time people don't even notice. And then once you're at a point where like people are starting to notice, um, I like think you're, you're probably already pretty good. Like You have a pretty good sense of what you believe in and what you want to do, so you're less fragile to like the attacks of random trolls on the internet.
1: Got it. Well, with that said, I think we're ready to start tackling some of the things you have written about. And from how you've described it, we'll talk about some things here that maybe you wrote before that you don't even necessarily completely Agree with your own words anymore, and it would be interesting to see in which cases that's true. Um, but let's let's start with one in particular that I thought was really interesting. The one that was uh, called "growth is not price." Something that we focus a lot on this podcast in particular is that you know th- this idea of like we can only measure projects in terms of a market capitalization or something else is just so fundamentally flawed. And, and not really something that you can or should optimize for if you are a project. On the other hand, that's what drove so much interest toward the space uh, for at least that, you know, like year plus long period where there was so much hype coming in. So talk to me about why you wrote that piece, if you recall it, where, where you're kind of saying that like price is an environmental effect. What, what does that mean? Why did you write that?
0: There's a, I think something that has come up over and over again, as I think about what's interesting to explore is, you know, what's um, real usage versus speculative usage or real adoption versus speculative adoption and real versus non-real. I mean, it could be fake numbers. It could be just pure like numbers that are based on um, speculation that's completely aside from what value end users are actually getting from. Uh, these products and services. Uh, in this case, it was, if I recall correctly, I think this was where I talk about ethos users. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I think I think that is the same piece.
0: Okay, yeah. So, a lot of people focus on price for projects because it's a really tangible thing to look at. Mm-hmm. And But price can be driven by so many different things. Um, it can be just some random group of people manipulating the price. It can be The team itself manipulating the price, Uh, a lot of environmental factors, like the bear market for crypto overall is tanking a lot of projects pretty much uniformly, but those projects aren't the same. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't really make sense for them to all go down the same amount, like a fund, like from a really base, what does this offer? Are people getting value from it? So I was trying to tease those two things apart. And it's really hard to measure how much total value is this thing providing like net good in the world. I don't know if it's possible. Um, Companies are kind of lucky because uh, you just look at cash flow and revenues, shareholder returns. And and that's actually a pretty good proxy if you share the values of uh, like capitalism, the the way our economy works right now. We don't really have that with uh, pure token projects. So my point was, if we really want the space to succeed, we can't just focus on what are all the paths to getting price to go up or reacting to price going down. We need to actually figure out um, who are the users that are going to benefit from these products and services and how do we get them to use these things, actually get value from them.
1: Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about how we might measure that because like you said, price is observable. And I think that's why so many people get caught up in it. That and the fact that, you know, it's not just observable, but it's like then you can somewhat cash out. Right, and then you can go away, and the the amount of appreciation uh, in your initial investment becomes like what you're able to do in completely unrelated markets. Right, like you use it to buy food. That's and, and so much of what happens on crypto networks doesn't become food, you know. And that doesn't mean it's not valuable. It just means it's not as liquid as some other things, like like price would be. People who like to speculate on the price of underlying crypto assets. So. When we talk about like price being more of an environmental effect, like what what does healthy growth look like for an early stage project, which basically every project in this space is, everybody trying to figure out what's worthwhile to build and so on you know what are what are the metrics you would look for at an early stage before we get past uh this this tipping point of adoption from just like a handful of developers to as you're saying something that can impact people all over the world, millions of people.
0: Yeah, and I th- I think uh what's interesting is in 2017 early 2018 there was a lot of conversation around value capture versus value creation and a lot of hand-wringing about, well, what if this thing is massively valuable, millions and maybe billions of people rely on it, but this token doesn't capture value? Um that's where people are talking about token models and the uh, like are utility tokens worth anything, velocity problems, all, all that stuff, which feels like very um Kind of old old hat to me already. But what's funny about that is uh, there was this assumption that there would be all this value creation, and I, for the most part, I don't think that's really happened. It's the problem hasn't been these things are massively used, creating tons of value, but we can't capture the value. It's that uh, the value hasn't really been created yet. So when I when I think about like how, what should we focus on, it's actually just creating that value. And sure, like if you're an investor or you're an entrepreneur. Um, you want to design things so that you can eventually capture the value like you create. But uh, focusing too much on the value capture before the value creation is uh, totally backwards. You're not going to – the value capture is not going to matter if you don't get the value creation.
1: I, and I agree with that. But let me let me push back on one thing, which is, you know, if everybody is so far away, let's – like the usability of all these technologies – is pretty low. We're at we're at a very early stage where you know people with some development expertise who are willing to invest in like maybe some specialized hardware too. Like they get a lot of the benefits right now. They're the people who are finding any kind of value, regardless of how it's captured. And it's going to take a while before these technologies mature and they can get into the hands of hundreds of thousands or millions of people, which I think we would say is is where it gets like truly meaningful to the world in aggregate. So before you get to that stage, right? Like if nobody is close to that stage or very, very few projects are close to that stage, what would you look for as like a metric? Like what would you be trying to get to that gives you some confidence that this thing that we're building is going to be useful to more than like a hundred or 200 people?
0: Oh, I see what you're saying. I, I think you just look at the same metrics that you look at for startups outside of crypto. Like are, do you have product market fit? And how do you measure that? You look at growth of your users and you figure out, hey, are, are these the users that are using my thing because they're getting value out of it? Is that number going up? And is that number going up in terms of users? Is it going up in dollars spent or time spent? Or it really depends on the business, but it's not uh, you know, how many transactions on the network if, if that's easily spoofed. It's not um, the price of the token. If it's not correlated at all with the actual usage of the protocol.
1: Let's talk about then like on-chain transactions, right? Because so many people are pushing this as a core metric or like the number of transactions per second your blockchain can even handle. And it's saying like, okay, this is what's interesting. Is that what's interesting? If you're saying that like, these are the kind of metrics that are, even though they're easily observable, they're easy to fake or easy to misinterpret. Like, do you think we put too much focus on that as a space?
0: Yeah, hundred percent. I, I wrote about this recently. Um,
1: the That does not surprise me.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's this, I think I was called like, you know, when is faking it till you make it hmm. wrong or something like that? Hmm. And um, yeah, I think, I mean, it's a huge problem. I don't know. I mean, how do you qualify it as huge? It's It's a problem and it's widespread and it's working in some cases, which is disappointing, but it seems to be working less than it was in prior years. Hmm. I mean, like, if if one person can fake a million transactions for some hundreds or thousands of dollars, and that leads to millions of dollars of impact on the price, like people are going to do it, right? So this is, uh, I think, Goodwin's law. If there's a metric that people are evaluating people on, it's going to be gamed. And there's good evidence that all of these things are being gamed in
1: yeah, I'm not going to make you name names. That's fine. I, I won't I won't push that hard. But I think we can agree that like, yeah, if it can be done, it is being done, especially if there are no consequences. Maybe instead of like thinking in terms of like consequences in terms of punishment, then because it's really hard to like punish somebody for this kind of behavior, I would say impossible. Like, how can we go about creating more visibility for what we would think of as good metrics? at this stage like what if if you and I both believe that there's other metrics that are more indicative of providing value to an end user which in turn is more correlated with long-term growth for the product and also for the space at large what what could we do to help people understand what these metrics are and how could we make these metrics more visible
0: I think it's two or three things the first is uh what i don't really have a lot of perspective on which is create better metrics that are harder to spoof and i know a lot of people have attempted this like nick carter and willie woo and teo um libowitz uh i don't know a lot about it i haven't really followed it that much but i think that seems reasonable like let's all align on some harder to spoof metrics the, the problem here is that you, you can't force everybody to use those metrics, like the market's going to use whatever metrics they want. Right. Um, so, and, and it's different for different projects. Like something that has to do with mining doesn't really work for a issued token. That's the ERC-20 or whatever. Anyways, um, the second thing is just have wins and have those wins be tied to numbers. So, for example, say MakerDAO um, becomes super successful. And, and some argue like it's doing super well. It has, what is it, 2 million ETH locked up in... Uh, CDPs, and that that's crazy. You can't fake that, right? Like you literally have that many ETH and CDPs, and there's risk there because if ETH goes down, then you get um, li- liquidated. So those those are numbers that you can't really spoof. And if that continues to grow, then you can say, well, this is clearly usage. I mean, this is clearly su- success for some project. Compare that to something else, which feels more wispy. Um, feels kind of lacking in substance. The comparison is more clear.
1: Yeah, I I think where we are going to keep running into difficulty, right, is it also depends who you know, who's looking at these metrics. If it's an end user deciding which product they're going to use, I don't think they care so much about the metrics necessarily as versus how much they're actually going to get utility from the product. They don't necessarily, it, if it's a social product, maybe this isn't true, but normally they just don't care how many other people are using it. They care if they personally are getting value from it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, and that, that's, I guess, the third thing where, um, you know, who, who are these metrics for? They're really They're People that are looking at these are either kind of insiders that are trying to better understand the composition of this entire space or speculators, investors that want to look at these things to invest. And the, there's an entirely different population that I'm more interested in, which is um, end users that, like to your point, they're not looking at these numbers. They just see something that is 10 times better than what they were using before. And the metric that you know, this this former group, the investors, builders, et cetera, will want to look at is How painful is it for them to part with this thing? This kind of, uh, I don't think it's, it's not an upper motor score. It's like the, you know, how upset would you be if this was no longer available to you kind of thing?
1: Right. Well, this links to something else that you've written about uh, in terms of a valuation framework. I've talked elsewhere about why I think one interesting valuation framework might be something that's more akin to options pricing. Um but I'm very biased because I used to be an options trader um, <laughs> so i wanna ask you instead about the thing you wrote about, which is this idea of replacement costs and you were talking about like if you're looking for how to value something, it really should be about how how expensive is it to a user to lose access to it or for or or for the world to lose access to it can- can you maybe? explain, if you can, better than I just did, hopefully, (laughs) the idea of of valuing something based on its replacement cost.
0: Yeah, the origin of this is from uh, Tyler Cowen's musing on whether we should value human lives on replacement cost. And replacement cost is commonly used in accounting um, to value assets. So uh, you can't say that this computer that you bought is worth $2,000 if you can buy a brand new one with the same specs, that's $1,000. So it's really used to establish a floor, um, a floor for these values. And it's whatever, given like a few different ways to value it, you have to pick the lowest one and replacement cost is often the lowest one. Um, and so for human lives, you you think, you know, should I spend $10 million on, I mean, this is morbid. And I really don't know what my position on this is yet. It's pretty like evocative. Concept: If you need to spend ten million dollars to keep a hundred-year-old alive, um, what's is that worth it? Like, what if the replacement cost is you know, two thousand dollars to give birth to a new person, or if you want to do all-in costs, and, you know, send them to college, like raise them, all that stuff? It's probably still less than ten million dollars. Um, so applied applied to cryptocurrencies, you know, is it worth it to continue spending money on a project that's going nowhere if you could replace it? for much less than what you would spend continuing to develop it. Um, Is is something worth uh, its market cap, if it would cost less than that to completely replace everything to do with that, including hash power, developer community, all these intangible things. So it's not super useful in practice, but it's a pretty fun way to look at it uh, because it helps you you consider are some of these valuations sane? Are some of these decisions to spend capital sane? And uh, where should we really be focusing our efforts?
1: This would be maybe indirectly, but it's an argument that, you know, awareness of, of a project, awareness of a technology should feed back directly into its value because, you know, it takes time for people to even learn about new technologies and learn about new networks beyond, you know, actually adopting the product. But say for something like Bitcoin, right, where forking the network is relatively cheap, but replacing the cultural power, let's say, of Bitcoin has proven to be extremely expensive and probably impossible. So how, so how, how do you think about the replacement cost of of Bitcoin is it? I'm not asking you to make like a an investment call here, right? And I never do on this show, but I'm just saying, like, if you're trying to think about Bitcoin, is, is this the best way to to do it? Maybe even beyond thinking of like you know the whole store of value and, and and anything else, but like even just like replacing the cultural relevance of something like this, can you do it?
0: Yeah, I mean, it, I think it's the replacement cost is relatively high, and probably a lot higher than what Bitcoin skeptics would think it is because, um, you know, no coin or Bitcoin skeptics think it's all magic internet money and there's no substance to it. But in reality, there's a lot of substance to it, tangible and kind of intangible. People that are kind of uh, focused on novelty and think Bitcoin's a dinosaur and doesn't have the features it needs are usually discounting some of the things you mentioned. The uh, the developer community, the fanatic adherence to the cult of Bitcoin, all of this stuff. Um, and we've seen only a couple projects even attempt to uh, come close to what Bitcoin has in, in those dimensions. Like Ethereum's done really well, Ripple has in its own way, even though it's a problematic project. And um, you can see a lot of failed attempts in its wake. Like all of the forks of Bitcoin haven't been able to successfully uh, replace. Bitcoin, um, and and part of the reason people are so excited about grin is because it's one of the first times people feel uh, there's a another project that might have this uh, this kind of halo around its immaculate conception and um, fair launch and all those kind of things.
1: Well, now, I mean, a lot more people are looking very carefully at the launch of grin versus we're looking at the launch of something like Bitcoin. And and people are, are even skeptical about things like that, because even if it's a fair launch, who is it fair to? And, and rather than, like, try to pick all of that apart, I think it's just fair to leave it at, at what you're saying, which is that the narrative here is very important. And, you know, perception is very important. Like, if I found out tomorrow that Grin had a secret pre-mine, that would very much, you know, challenge my perspective on it. But you know you you can only reach that point if there's enough visibility into these projects to to even know that there would have been a, a secret pre mine right right so it it's very it's very complex you do a great job on your blog trying to tease all of this stuff apart so let's return to another aspect of this growth puzzle which is this idea of like you know the local maxima of getting developer adoption versus the global relevance that I think only really Bitcoin has approached, where it's reached the cultural consciousness. There's mainstream adoption to some extent. You know, there was there was a tipping point, you know, probably difficult to identify in retrospect, but there was a tipping point at which this occurred. How? Let me let me be specific, like what kinds of technologies, what kind of platforms, products, protocols are you seeing right now that you think have the potential to break past that tipping point into the cultural consciousness? And how are they going to do it?
0: So I I think um, Bitcoin is pretty unique because it's uh, the market is money. Money is the size of... I mean, the the TAM for money is um, everybody because everybody uses money. And that makes it easier to... Achieve a massive brand, be the first, you know, feasible internet money, exist for ten years, um, have credible businesses built around it, have credible people talk about it. Uh, so it, it's hard to imagine any other cryptocurrency getting that level of brand recognition unless they're also tapping into this kind of money concept. Even World Computer, it's not as the market's not as big as um, as money, but. I actually, I don't think that's important. It's important for Bitcoin. It's important for, I mean, the money use case is, you know, probably the most compelling for cryptocurrencies. But I, I'm equally interested in projects that are going after a monopoly in their own niche, whatever it is. So if um, if you start to see a project that is just crushing the, uh, I mean, pulling it out of thin air. Like I, I just saw a story about uh, Abra allowing people to buy stocks with Bitcoin. Like say the use case is allowing anybody in the world to buy U.S. equities. If they dominate that niche globally, they become the biggest player um, outside of the U.S. doing that. That's really compelling because that means that they found something uh, and they're creating value for a big group of users and they can they can expand from there. Um, and I, I think that's equally... At scale, that's equally valuable as one coin having a huge brand recognition.
1: Yeah, that's definitely talking about a different model than like, you know, having a token associated with it or or just, you know, being a cryptocurrency, like being Bitcoin, being Monero, et cetera. Um, but one place one place I think you, you have, you know, unique perspective on is... Maybe the, the vertical that I see talked about the most when it comes to like end user adoption, because something else that seems universal, although in different senses, is, you know, people want to have fun, right? They they, they seem to want to have money for good reason. They also seem to want to have fun. And it feels like a lot of the interesting applications that I'm seeing now for blockchain, cryptocurrencies, etc., have something at least to do with gaming. So it's something you've written about a bit. It's something we've had people on this show to talk about. Like we had James from Loom. We had Marguerite de Corsell. Uh, what's your perspective on the relationship? You know, I think you probably have a, you know, a perspective that's driven by your past, some driven by your work now, but what's your perspective on the relationship between games, blockchain, and like end user adoption?
0: So I think, you uh, one is that I think, uh, this is kind of bottoms up, I think games are a really great place to experiment with crypto and figure out what are the mechanics that are fun? What are the applications of the technology that make sense? How do we reach people that aren't um, what I've called ethos users, people that are really care about decentralization and transparency and censorship and all that kind of stuff? How do we reach people that don't care about that and deliver something that's just purely fun and competes with Fortnite or um, like indie games or mobile games or whatever the category? I think this this will this should be a good lab for figuring out what's fun, what works, and a lot of that will be applicable outside of it, um, outside of gaming. So that's the bottoms up viewpoint here, and so I'm super excited about work happening here. Really supportive, want to contribute the way I can. I mean, decentraland you could consider to be one big game or a platform for many games. So um, obviously very passionate here. On on the top down side. Uh, the question is kind of like, you know, is gaming a big category for crypto? Can technologies, products, services built uh, on top of blockchains? Maybe it involves coins as money. Maybe it involves coins and tokens as game assets. Maybe it's something else entirely. Is that a big market? And can you deliver a lot of value to users in that category? And I, I think um, I'm, I'm more, uh, I'm not tepid, like I'm just more cautious about being really bullish about this space, which some people really are. And I, I've written about why uh, adding crypto to games um, that doesn't really work for the business models. Like the business models now work really well and the players don't really care that much that uh, the business models are the way that they are. So you kind of going back to what we were talking about before on getting end user adoption, delivering value to them. Um, I, I have to imagine that it's going bottoms up. We're going to keep experimenting, experimenting. A little bit uncertain about whether this is a big category, and we'll find a few things that are really cool. And maybe those things will balloon into, you know, overtake um, existing ways of of structuring games.
1: I mean, games even traditionally have this habit of of being sort of like going through these massive cycles of popularity and then you know untimely demise. And it wouldn't surprise me that we see something similar with games that are that are based uh, on, you know, or integrate cryptocurrency in some way, just because the entire space kind of went through this massive cycle of adoption and, you know, speculation and then, you know, the inevitable correction. Like these are all applications, I I guess, that are that are subject to those kind of cycles. So are you? If i'm gonna I don't want to speak for you, but like since we keep coming back to the idea of like Bitcoin and money and ownership, you know in the case of what Abra's is trying to do, you know, do you see that as being a more sustainable model for how blockchain tech is going to be implemented at scale
0: as money, So you're saying.
1: Yeah, like well at least those kinds of use cases or what do, what do you think are some like sustainable use cases for this stuff? Like if any individual game is going to implement this like but like games already have this cycle of like they'll be massively adopted and then people get bored. But you know, we're saying that Bitcoin is something at least only in brand at least like it seems to be sustainable. It seems to have a massive replacement cost whereas like a game with zero adoption now the replacement cost has dropped to zero where at some time it might have been really expensive to replace a network of players games die right crypto networks die
0: that's a good framing that's a good use of replacement costs um the yeah totally i mean that's why vcs are really excited to invest in money and finance and uh SaaS, you know these are things that are less uh, driven by taste um, they solve needs that people have in doing their everyday business games are for fun and some of them stick around for a long time. But to your point, a lot of, uh, they're more like films than they are software companies. So I, I, I'm split here. One is, you know, games haven't been a good category for long-term investors. The, the funding model is different. Mostly it's a publishing model where um, you get some kind of upfront money as a developer. And then you have to pay back the upfront money with your revenues until your, your investors whole. And then they get some percentage of revenues going forward, completely different from VC model. And that's because you you don't have the same, um, the same, the portfolio construction doesn't, isn't the same. You don't invest in 10 companies and hope one turns into a billion dollar company because they all have that upside potential. Uh, instead games, you know, a lot of them just make a little bit of money and some of them become blockbusters, but way more rarely than I think early stage startup investing.
1: So, okay. So I, I think I have a good sense of how you feel about this and maybe where we can make this very tangible then is let's let's talk about what you're working on now with Decentraland. And so we've talked a little bit about like how you think about growth, how you're thinking about like the value for the end user, how you're thinking about, you know, sustaining that value and and – now let's think about like very specifically in terms of what you're building today. How do all of those thoughts come together, right? All these thoughts that are constantly going through your mind, ending up in your writing, ending up in your work, how are they ending up in Decentraland?
0: Right. So uh, the the second part of my thinking around games is that when you start to experiment with using crypto, you might have games that don't really look like the games that we play now. They're not these kind of format games that you play on your phone like Star Wars-flavored Bejeweled or like raccoon-flavored Battle Royale or whatever. Um, they, they could be designed in a way that's less focused on let's bring in the next big thing and sell a bunch of cosmetics and then that dies and you replace it with a sequel. Um, and we probably don't have enough time to go into uh, I, Well, So I'll, I'll just quickly go into one thing that I, I think is interesting. Uh, this is kind of like unproven from a regulatory perspective, but you could have... Um, game assets that actually give you claims to cash flows in the game. And so users end up becoming more invested into the long-term success of uh, the game itself. So there are things like that 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 can change the dynamics around the interactions of the gamers and the game itself. And you can see more sustainable platforms get built on top of that, game platforms. Um, Decentraland is, I I think Decentraland is different than the kind of... flavor-of-the-month games because we're not really trying to build a flavor-of-the-month game. We're trying to build a world. And historically, it's been extremely hard to build virtual worlds, but extremely compelling. But the ones that are successful, they've uh, they've kind of stuck around. Um, Second Life, I've always pushed back on people saying Second Life failed because even today, creators on Second Life are making, I think... Philip Rosedale just tweeted like $70 million, $60 to $70 million a year in Second Life today. And people thought it died 15 years ago. So creating this, um, we're not not setting out to create uh, a game. We're setting out to create a place. And our thesis is that by giving people more ownership over the place, it'll have more lasting value, uh, incentivize people to contribute more to that world, and um, the sum of all of the contributions of the people that own the world will dwarf any contributions that a single company could make to a world.
1: I, I love the thesis. Obviously, you're not alone in kind of having this thesis around. You know what, what a platform for this might look like that's combining elements of decentralization and blockchain and you know these game worlds that you know traditionally have been things like uh, Second Life or other platforms. I find it very compelling. How would you, so how would you characterize it? Like looking at something like what Decentraland is doing versus uh, other protocols, which may not have as like strict of a focus on like uh, creating th- this world, this virtual world, but more just like a world computer. Like what's, what's the difference here? Well, it, not just to the end user, but just like conceptually, like they're both so hard for me to wrap my head around. How do you, how do you
0: think about it? Well, the, the central line is easier to wrap your head around, which is which is nice. That's been a really lucky um, outcome for what we set out to make. When you say it's like X, Y, or Z, but you own the land, uh, well, everybody gets it. And of course, the implementation details are more complex than that. And trying to wrap your head around Ethereum and et cetera is, is hard. But that kind of gets the you know your, your point too. You start to try to explain the world's computer part and people either get it or they don't. And uh, it's so abstract. And, and the users are going for with that are either um, speculators, and most of them are speculators in a uh, smart contract protocol, and then some developers. And the developers are super valuable because they create things like Enigma or Decentraland or you know, what have you. And it's those developers that are gonna make those uh, smart contract protocols valuable but with the decentralized it's kind of in this weird middle where it's it's not really chain or protocol and it's not really an end user app it's kind of both so you could look at it as you inherit the costs of both the the disadvantages of both or the the benefits of both and i think it's you know obviously it's both but i think what what's really cool is we're this year we're really focusing on attracting end users getting people that don't necessarily need to understand ethereum to create content for the world, explore the world, hang out with their friends, things like that.
1: And the opportunity that you have going back to the beginning of our conversation is that you guys have your own metrics that you can develop. They're not going to apply to something like Enigma, uh, where it may be a lot more about on-chain adoption or, or, you know, products that are developed on top of the protocol. And for you, you're going to have these end user metrics that you're going to have the opportunity to tell people like this links back very strongly to the actual value that it's providing to the end user. It's not just like on-chain transactions. It's like there is a person out there somewhere who was willing to invest in this platform and we can show how much or how often.
0: Yeah, that's actually right. I never really thought about it that way, but that it's kind of a cool concept where you, you'll be able to walk around and see like every single piece of land that you traverse just walking around the world that's something somebody's invested their time and energy into developing it's not just you know some game development team somewhere
1: well to tie all this up let's move into kind of what i wanted to do as my last topic because you were in the virtual reality space for a little bit right hmm i I was studying when I when I was at MIT, I was I was doing some looking into like the VR space and the AR space at the same time that I was looking into the blockchain space. And it feels like these cycles in terms of like how people are evaluating the potential of the technology versus how the technology is being valued versus what actual adoption is looking like and how the technology has actually advanced. There was this same sort of like over-excitement and then potentially over-correction?
0: Yeah, absolutely.
1: So now, like, so how do you see those two cycles? How how have they kind of coincided? Do you see those same parallels? And and now, how are you seeing, like, do you think that they have something to learn and something to gain from each other?
0: I, I guess, I mean, I, I always, you know, joke to, I guess, myself that I'm, um, a year too early, or a couple of years too early, to technologies. I, I did it with online video, and then um, VR, and, and now now crypto. to some, I mean, to some degree, I think if, if I, I I kind of time the the middle of the hype cycle uh, before it's right. And I I think the lesson here isn't, and I, but that's fine, right? Like you, you end up having more time to learn about the technology, build a foundation in it, meet all the people that are really believers in it, and that really helps you in longer term building that space. What can you learn from it? I mean, I think it's that uh, these cycles happen pretty frequently and the separating the exuberance from the fundamentals is a hard skill, but something that's useful. And I think every cycle I get a little bit better at it. And I think that's partly why it's such a theme in my writing because I'm just trying to understand, you know, what, what are some ways of thinking about this that can help In future cycles. And if you really believe in it, just kind of stay the course, because with with these cycles, they they get up, people get really excited, they go down, people get really depressed, and then eventually many of them become really promising areas. And I I definitely see that happening in VR. I'm really excited about what's coming out with VR and AR right now, way more than I was even when I first got into it. And I was really excited then.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I'm only now tangentially kind of looking at the space I try to keep up. I looked into like HoloLens and developer kits and all these things and I'm just like now very overwhelmed. I can really only handle one like crazy hot space at a time probably. Um is there anything in particular you think listeners should watch out for on the VR side?
0: Yeah, on the hardware side, all-in-one headsets are finally coming this year. Cool. Which means you have six degrees of freedom in your head, which means it tracks you when you turn your head left and right, up and down, and when you move forward and back, like walking. And that's hard. Before we've only had four degrees or three degrees. And um, same with controllers. So now you can just, you know, be in your living room. You don't have to have any wires or cameras or anything, and you just you can exist in a virtual space, inside out tracking is what it's called to have the cameras on the actual headset, not peripherally. That's amazing. I mean, that, that feeling of uh, immersion is unbelievable. Like you've really never felt anything like it. And then on the software side, I think a lot of the companies that started you know, at the base of the hype cycle around VR, some of them are going to be worth a lot of money on the consumer side. Before, everybody was pretty down on consumer VR for a while. The, the project that I worked on was called Altspace VR. It was a kind of a virtual world, mostly a communications platform for VR, and our competitors, uh, VR Chat, uh, Rec Room, Big Screen, the um, you know, other kind of approaches on the same. Uh, they're they're getting really cool, and All Space is getting really cool too. So all all of these things, they were, they they felt a little janky, they weren't really working that well, but now you're seeing some really unbelievably rich. Communities and content forming in these worlds. And so, if you haven't seen it before, I really recommend checking out a a bunch of these things. I I think you'll get, you'll be blown away.
1: That's, that's super exciting. I have to go throw out some things in my living room so I can go put a bunch of VR stuff in now. Apparently, that's, that's, that's the call to action here. (laughs) But I think, you know, again, that's motivating. And if you're listening to this, right, I think it's motivating to hear that, like, technologies are coming you know they change like people have to leave the space they enter the space things that we all believed you know turned out to not be true but things that we didn't even know were possible are becoming possible and if there's anything that i hope happens in the blockchain decentralization space you know that has already been happening in these other spaces that have gone through similar cycles it's that you know eventually some really cool stuff can happen and stuff that can get into the hands of individual people. And you just don't know, you know, to, to what extent, like how, how far are we from these missing pieces? Maybe you don't know unless we keep kind of experimenting and getting it into people's hands.
0: Yeah. And I think like, it's a really instructive lesson on, um, the kind of ethos driven motivations of founders and early adopters and the kind of practical, uh, motivations of end users back then everybody in vr everybody was really focused on i want people to feel closer together i want the world to feel more unity like that kind of stuff you know like there was a a different set of ethoses around early vr um thinking and vr heads will yell at me for saying early vr because it's not really early vr but you know modern early vr um similarly i think with crypto i i write about you know let's let's not focus so much on the ethos stuff, but it, it's kind of a, a yin and yang. The the folks that stick around, build stuff, driven by ethos because they want to see a, a world that has this or that, censorship-resistant money, private, internet, like whatever it is, um, when they stick it out and they focus on delivering real value to real users, those users aren't going to necessarily care about the ethos side of things, but the net result is going to be you have these things that you cared about. But you have to package them in ways that end users, like, get value from?
1: Well, I'm really looking forward to seeing, you know, not, not just the base layer technologies develop, you know, like we're working on, but also these end user layers, like the, the application layer is coming. People are starting to value UX a little bit more. So I'm really excited to see what you guys continue to build over at Decentraland. I'm excited to keep reading what you're writing. So for people listening, if they want to keep an eye on the stuff that you're putting out or the stuff that uh, you're, you're putting out at Decentraland, where can they go to learn more about you, the project, etc.?
0: Yeah, Decentraland is decentraland.org. Um, and Twitter, I think it's just at the end. And for me, uh Tony com, and I'm on Twitter at Tony shang.
1: Awesome. I'm going to be looking out for what you publish next. Uh, you know, I, I still try to make time in my day for, for the few people where it's like, they're going to put out something that I haven't read anywhere else. And I, I definitely feel like you're in that category. I encourage everybody to go check it out. Uh, but again, Tony. Thank you for making the time. I thought this was super illuminating for me. Hopefully listeners learned something as well. And again, I I look forward to seeing more.
0: Cool. Thanks, Tor. Really fun.